Uh, Dr. Hess has been tasked as a physician and pastor with examining all kinds of things relative to inherited tendencies, the science, the spirit of prophecy. And uh, he's gonna take us on a journey here because if this is really a different kind of sin, then I guess we're in trouble. But if it's similar to other things, then probably all of us have a spectrum of inherited and cultivated tendencies. The world, of course, is trying to press this upon us as a means of um, discovery, of joy, of relief, of therapy, however uh, you might describe it. So our last segment today, before we go to supper, is going to be carried forward by Dr. Hess, who uh, has both attended the seminary, has his MDiv degree, and also Loma Linda University, has pastored for many years in uh, Northern California, and is now here as a part of our staff. So Dr. Hess, may God bless you as you take us on our last segment today, Conceived in Sin But Born Again. Thank you for the introduction and the invitation to speak about this. And uh, I have to say I'm a little bit torn because I have so much material, but but I have so many questions for the other presenters because they've been all so good, I want to interact with everyone. So I imagine many of you are feeling the same way. But uh, before I get started, I, you know, I'm a pastor and I'm a physician and uh, sometimes I'm not sure if I'm giving, uh, what was it, Dr. Walsh said, a, he, he called it a seminar. Seminar, I, I like that term. Uh, but whatever it is, let's, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your mercy, your love. We thank you for your truth and your, your condescension to enter into humanity, to interact with us, uh, to bring us salvation. And this afternoon, Lord, as, as I present some of this material, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here We've all heard a lot already today. There's so much information to cover, and we can just barely uh, touch on it, but we pray that your Holy Spirit will bring home to our hearts the part that is most needed for us and each one of us in our ministry. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I entitled this a brief overview of the concept of inherited and cultivated tendencies in sin found in scripture and the writings of Ellen White correlated with some of the relevant scientific literature. So there we go. We're going to do all that in the next 45 minutes. <laughs> not, not a chance, not a chance. So my background is already mentioned. I've been doing this for a while. That's enough of that. Um, we're going to get right in to this, before we're, we dig into the scripture, we're gonna look at some of Ellen White's writings, we're gonna look at some scientific stuff, but I wanna say kind of the big picture for us today, I wanna challenge you to develop a, a deeper and more robust understanding of sin and a, a deeper and more robust, uh, robust understanding of the grace of God. I think that's the take-home message from this presentation. And I have a lot of slides with a lot of text, and I, I may skip over some of it. I'm going to ask 
that uh, Tony will mail or email my notes to anybody that's registered. So you don't have to hurry and take a picture of everything or try to write it all down. We'll email it to you, okay? So the scripture says, the Lord God says, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon whom? What did it say? The children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, are there people in the world today that hate God? There are. There are. Are there people that love God and keep the commandments? Yes. So, the, the question for my topic today is what is going on right here? Uh, visiting the iniquities upon the children. That seems a little bit harsh to some people today to, to, to even say that. What does that even mean? Does that mean that God is punishing me because my parents were sinners? Uh, or does it mean that I am a sinner because my parents were sinners. And it's like, well, that's why I'm saying we need to challenge our understanding of sin. So in the book of Romans, and I appreciated, I think a couple of the other presenters had quoted from the book of Romans. Paul makes it very clear by how many people was it? One man, sin entered the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon how many of us? All of us. And we might just say, well, that's not fair, but uh, who are we to say to the Creator God that He messed up the creation? The Scripture goes on to say, as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And I just want to challenge you to think very carefully about sin and, and inheritance. We're going to see a lot of things that Ellen, Ellen White says about this. And often, Seventh-day Adventists, I, I've, I'm a lifelong third-generation Seventh-day Adventist. I love my church. Okay, So if I say anything that sounds critical, I'm criticizing myself too. All right, I just want to clarify that. Many of us, are so reactive against other things that we kind of overreact on the opposite side. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, we, we've done that with emotional things. We've, we've kind of downplayed emotions and pushed them so far that, that we kind of overreact the other way. We've also done that with, you know, the Catholics believe in original sin and, and that we have the original sin and we kind of react against that. But but we, we have to take this seriously. It actually says, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. But the good news is, it also says, by the obedience of one shall many be made what? Righteous. And it, it goes so far that Paul even made the excuse that the devil made me do it. Well, not exactly, right? He said it's... It's no more I that do this. This is the struggle when, when Paul had an encounter with Christ, he, he got into the struggle between his desires and 
the Spirit. And we've all been there. We've all been in the struggle where we couldn't stop ourselves from doing that same sin again and again. And, and Paul says, it's, it's no more me, but it's sin that dwells in me. So Paul is talking about sin as, as this thing that lives in me. And, and the Bible sort of says that, well, that's something that we got as a gift from our parents in some way. And so Ellen White talks about that quite a bit. And I, was, I set out to review all of what Ellen White said about that, and it's a lot. And so I've, I've selected a few of the relevant quotes. Uh, of course, many of them are repeated, you know, copied multiple times in her writings. But uh, these are, we have a fairly balanced selection here of uh, different types of things that she said. So I'm going to give you a quick overview summary. And the first thing is children inherit tendencies to sin from their parents. She says that very clearly in multiple places. And then the next thing here is perhaps somewhat more controversial that parents' habits and lifestyle affect the inherited tendencies of the children. Now, you remember when um, Ellen White was writing, what else was going on in this scientific world? What was a you know, very popular book that was published in uh, the, the late, and uh, mid to late 1800s? I'm hearing a bunch of different answers. So the, the whole idea of evolutionary theory and the idea of inherited traits and natural selection. And, and Darwin got it completely wrong on several counts. First of all, Darwin knew nothing about genes. Right? So just, just based on that, Darwin's theory is complete hogwash, if you know anything about genetics. Because right? when you stretch your neck, it doesn't change your genes to make your children's neck longer. Uh, so people have said that Ellen White made the same mistake because she said things like if you eat a bad diet and it inflames your blood, you'll pass on your propensity to passion and lust to your children. And people said, well, that's not how genes work. But we'll come back to that. It turns out she actually knew what she was talking about. Or somebody, somehow, she said something that was actually correct. So, uh, she said we must overcome what? Both inherited and cultivated tendencies to evil. Now, I'm not going to go off on this big theological tangent, just a real short one. This is one thing that Jesus never had to do. You know that? Jesus uh, we, we can possibly debate about inherited tendencies to evil and what exactly that meant. And if he had some just like we do, uh, that's probably a lecture for another day. We're not going to go into that. But how about this one? Cultivated tendencies to evil. Did Jesus cultivate tendencies to evil? He did not. So he never had to overcome cultivated tendencies to evil. 
theological implications of that are massive, and we don't address that, or I've never heard it properly addressed. So, but we don't have time right now, so we're going to keep going. Uh, and we can only do this, that is, overcome both inherited and cultivated tendencies to sin. We can only do this through the supernatural power of God. All right, here we go. All right. By inheritance and example, the sons become partakers of the father's sins, wrong tendencies, perverted appetites, debased morals, as well as physical disease and degeneracy are transmitted as a legacy from father to son to the third and fourth generation. That sounds horrible. It almost makes me not want to be a human being. Like, this is... Some of you know my parents and like to think like was this really did I get all this from my dad and my mom well yeah they were sinners too and they struggled with all sorts of stuff and I have some of the same propensities and same challenges Uh, this fearful truth should have a solemn power to restrain men from following a course of sin if you ever are a parent you ever want to be a parent should think about this. This one, this one gets to be sounding almost like that Catholic doctrine of original sin, doesn't it? Maybe not exactly, but it's the inheritance of children is that of sin. As related to the first Adam, men receive from him nothing but guilt and the sentence of death. Oof. This is not sounding good for us. This, this one is even farther out there. I didn't highlight this, but what does that say? It is a sin to be sick. What? Are you serious? It's a sin to be sick? Well, that's what she said. I didn't write it. I'm just putting it on the screen for you to contemplate. All right. All sickness is a result of transgression. Many are suffering in consequence of the transgression of their parents. They cannot be censured for their parents' sin, but it is nevertheless their duty to ascertain wherein their parents violated the laws of their being. Now, to our therapist friends, there's this thing in therapy out there, I'm sure none of the therapists here have done this, uh, but I've, I've had patients who have come to me and told me that their therapist did this, and that is they figured out where their parents went wrong so they can have an excuse for their way they're living and then not have to feel bad about all of their problems because they can blame it on their parents. Is that what this says? We should ascertain where their parents have violated the laws of their being, which has entailed upon their offspring so miserable an inheritance, and wherein their parents' habits were wrong, they should change their course and place themselves by correct habits in a better relation to health. So yes, we we probably should examine where our parents went wrong, not so that we can blame them and, uh, and use them as an excuse for our sin. My sin is not my parents' fault, right? My responsibility is to figure out what's this inheritance that I have and how can I set myself on a better course so that then perhaps I can leave a better legacy for my children?
God will accept only those who are determined to aim high. He places every human agent under moral obligation to do his best. Moral perfection is required of how many? One of the earlier presenters said that word. And uh, he said it as if, you know, you have to be careful to say that word because people get upset. There it is. Moral perfection is required of all. Never should we lower the standard of righteousness to accommodate what? Inherited or cultivated tendencies to wrongdoing. Now, I remember, so I, I, I remember in grade school having debates with some of my classmates about whether alcoholism was a sin or a disease. Because yeah, like back in the 1980s, that was a, a big thing. Like, it's, a, it's just a disease. You know, if you have a disease, you can't help it. And so we should not talk about it as a sin. We shouldn't make people feel guilty. I'll have news for you. People feel guilty without us making them feel guilty. Isn't that true? How many of you, when you're sinning, in, in the past, when, you, when you're struggling with sin, even if nobody knows about it, you stu- still feel guilty? Whether anybody's told you that you should feel guilty or not. No. We still feel guilty because we know. Because the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. And we know when we're violating our conscience. So is, is uh, alcoholism a, a sin or a disease? We could ask the same question for any other addiction, any other behavior that is not in harmony with God's plan? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. If, if you are addicted to sinful behavior, that is sin and it's a disease. And the good news is that the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth to restore in man the image of God and to remove sin and disease and wretchedness and to in its place bring health and peace and perfection of character. So the answer is yes, it's a sin. Yes, it's a disease. And when we try to separate those things, that's that dualism uh, that uh, was mentioned earlier. When we try to separate those things, then we don't understand either one of them and we put ourselves in a worse position. And that's, that's been the, the history. Uh, uh, Nancy Percy wrote a book called uh, Total Truth. I don't have it up here. I was just reminded by the, the earlier presentation. When, when we separate science and religion, th- we actually invalidate both of them. But anyway, that's a, I'm getting off the topic here. I, I need to keep going. Uh, Yeah, so that's that one. Next one. The work to which Christ calls us is to the work of progressive conquest over spiritual evil in our characters. Natural tendencies are to be overcome for the natural disposition is to be transformed by the grace of God. Appetite and passion must be conquered and the will must be placed wholly on the side of Christ. 
she couldn't be any more clear than that. So whether your sin is inherited, cultivated, or whatever else you want to call it, it must be overcome. And it can only be overcome by the grace of Christ. There's no other way. Feeling the terrible power of temptation and drawing of a desire that leads to indulgence, many a man cries in despair, I cannot resist evil. Have you ever felt that way? I know I have at times in my life. Yeah. I mean, if, if you have not felt that way at some point in your life, you, maybe you're not paying attention. But tell him, oh, I'm going to go back, push the wrong button there. Tell him that he can, that he must resist. He may have been overcome again and again, but it need not be always thus. Isn't that good news? You may have fallen, you may have uh, been overcome again and again. Somebody said earlier, I think for, for those in a, a homosexual lifestyle that come out, they relapse is like 99%. Well, how many of us have given our lives to God and promised that we're going to follow Jesus and then have sinned again after that? I'm going to guess it's like 100%. 100%. The only way you get out of being 100% is the thief on the cross who died right then, right? So if you're still alive, you're part of the 100% that have relapsed into sin. What's the answer? Go to Jesus again. Get back up. Let him, let him uh, help you. You need not despair. You need not despair. Those who put their trust in Christ are not to be enslaved to any hereditary or cultivated habit or tendency. Instead of being held in bondage to the lower nature, they are to rule every appetite and passion. God has not left us to battle with evil in our own finite strength. Whatever may be our inherited or cultivated tendencies to wrong, what does it say? We can overcome through the power that He, God, is ready to to impart. Now, this, this one right here, I thought about not putting it in here, but I decided it needed to be in here. So, Christ Object Lessons has some really good stuff there. You should go read the whole chapter. She's talking about the, you, you remember the parable Jesus told about the, the man who went to the wedding feast, but he didn't have the wedding garment. You remember that? Okay, so she says many people are like that. Uh, they have not overcome their hereditary or cultivated tendencies to wrong, yet they think that they are good enough in themselves, and they rest upon their own merits instead of trusting in Christ. Now, I want to point out one thing here. This is slightly different than the last quote, isn't it? Because some, some of us sinners recognize our sin, and we're struggling, and struggling and we feel despair some of us sinners we justify ourselves and we think that we're good enough and uh, yeah some of us are even proud of our sins so what happens many who call themselves Christians are mere human moralists not doers of the word uh, 
the heavenly principles that distinguish those who are one with Christ from those who are one with the world have become almost indistinguishable. The professed followers of Christ are no longer a separate and peculiar people. The line of demarcation is indistinct. This should be hitting home a little bit. You know, so many of our Christian churches, there is no line anymore. I tell you, uh, so as a physician, I, I'm a primary care physician. When patients come in, I always, uh, new patients, I take a, a full history that includes asking them about things like substance abuse and their relationships and their preferences and those sort of things. I usually don't ask about their preference. I ask about if they're, if they're in any relationship. Are you married, single, or something else? And they always tell me. <laughs> and I'm surprised the number of people that tell me, oh yeah, uh, I, I'm in a relationship you know, with my girlfriend and we have two kids, whatever. And then the next question a minute later is, what's your religious preference? Oh, I'm Christian. It's like, whoa, whoa, back, back up. You're Christian and you smoke pot and you live with your girlfriend. Like, for, for most of the people out there, they don't even realize that those things are incompatible because this line of demarcation is indistinct. The people are subordinating themselves to the world, to its practices, its customs, its selfishness. The church has gone over to the world in transgression of the law when the world should have come over to the church in obedience to the law, daily the church is being converted to the world. God have mercy. The church is where people are supposed to come for healing. The church is supposed to be proclaiming the grace of God that transforms lives into the likeness of God that restores that likeness. And the church is being converted to the world. And this is the world that says it doesn't believe in conversion therapy, but they're practicing conversion therapy on the Christian church, converting the church to be like the world. May God help us. Okay, we're going to get to the science now. Ellen White says, there is a science of Christianity to be mastered. Look, again, hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil must be overcome. Often the education and training of a lifetime must be discarded. You know, some of, uh, some of us, some of you, so many people have practiced and studied a lifetime in their sin, going the wrong way. But when Jesus gets a hold of you and says, it's time to turn around, I mean, to repent, right? It's time to repent and learn a better way. So then it's time to become a learner in the school of Christ. And oh, when we're sitting at the feet of Christ, we're all on the same plane. That's the best place to be. Christ has given us no assurance that to attain perfection of character is easy. Of course, how many of you know that already? Yeah, <laughs> Ellen White didn't have to be inspired to tell us that, but it, it, it's not easy. But here's the thing. And I, and I love how this connects with, uh, with this over here. I love the way all of these presentations are 
interconnecting and reinforcing each other, even though I don't think any of us actually conspired together to make it that way. It was all the Holy Spirit. Uh, here it says, uh, repentance and discipleship towards obedience and healing. Um, basically describes a partnership, right? Where, where God does the supernatural part and, and we do our part in cooperation. Uh, and, and that's what's described here. God gives the talents and powers of mind. We form the character. By hard, stern battles with self, conflict after conflict must be waged against hereditary tendencies. We shall have to criticize the world, the LGBTQ community, the producers of pornography of Hollywood, who are we supposed to criticize? Ourselves closely and not allow one unfavorable trait to remain uncorrected. The Christian life is a battle and it marks the greatest battle that was ever fought by man, the surrender of self to the will of God. Hereditary tendencies of former habits must be given up. Let's see. Um, all right, I thought this was interesting. When we determine to do the right thing, what happens? Selfishness and pride will make a stand against anything that would show them to be sinful. God alone can give us the victory. All right. So that's kind of a quick overview. I'll come back with a few more Ellen White quotes toward the end that uh, maybe will give us a little bit more hope. Those were pretty heavy-duty stuff, weren't they? Like, oh, that's a big mountain to climb. So one of the things that we have to figure out is are we going to be um, philosophical naturalists or uh, libertarian in our views? And by that I mean, and I mean, we could launch into a whole long lecture on different schools of philosophy, but basically this comes down to is everything predetermined so philosophic naturalism basically says everything's predetermined. Like all the chemical reactions, everything happens according to physical law and you, you don't really have a choice. Um, sort of some brands of Calvinism are like the supernatural version of that. Like God's predetermined everything. Uh, we don't really believe that, I don't think, do we? We believe that, that actually God has given us free choice. And we know that because God tells us to choose. You know, I mean, that's the simplest proof in the Bible that God gives us free will is he tells us to choose. And so when God tells you to choose, that means he gives you the power to choose and, and you have the responsibility to choose. So when we start talking about science, most scientists today, and speaking very broadly, they, they work as if everything's predetermined, but they live their lives as if they actually have free choice. It's kind of weird. It's that split. It's, it's like uh, philosophical schizophrenia. 
Um, so we need to pay attention to that as we're looking at the science and realizing like the science is not just science, okay? You guys all know that science is affected by politics and religion and philosophy. And, and actually science really is just a branch of philosophy. So don't let the scientists set themselves up to be in charge. Um, let's see. Next. Yeah, still. The laser's still working, but my uh, advance button is not working. Do we have another? Oh, there we go. It's working. Okay. Um, so, here we go. A review. Now, scientific literature. It, there's a ton in the last 20 years on genetics. Um, so when we're talking about biologic factors influencing tendencies and behaviors. So genetics is certainly one of those things. We have a lot of information now about genetics that we didn't have 20 or 30 years ago. It's just an explosion. So genetics you all understand the basic concept of genetics. It's you're inheriting these little bits of information that tell your, your cells what to do and how to make proteins to build your body and those affect everything about you. Now, uh, an interesting thing is there's this thing called epigenetics, which is actually uh, fairly complicated. Like the genetics itself is very complicated and then epigenetics is another whole nother uh, order of magnitude of extra complication to this whole thing. Epigenetics is not the code itself that codes for the proteins or the whatever, but it's, it's the, you might think of it as the switches that switch those genes on and off. That's kind of an oversimplistic view of it, but that's the basic idea. So like if we have all these lights up here, but, but if each one of them had a series of switches, then those would be the sort of epigenetic pieces. And, um, and those things are actually affected by uh, prenatal exposures as well as postnatal, that means before you're born and after you're born, exposures and even experiences. So uh, sociologic and uh, relationship phenomenon can affect epigenetic expressions, which affects expression of your genes. So it gets all very complicated very quickly. So I'm gonna do just a very high level overview. Uh, and the, the first ones I chose were based around uh, sexual orientation. And so you've heard from some of the other presenters about the validity of that term and it's even there's debates among the researchers on how to use the term, but uh, that being said, here was probably the largest genetic study on same-sex uh, behavior and genetics. This is a genome-wide association study. Um, was done in 2019. They looked at almost half a million people and they took the entire genome sequence and tried to find correlations and 
kind of an interesting study, but the, the strange thing was the people that published the study were not uh, totally objective. Is that a big surprise? <laughs> not, a, not a big surprise. This is a quote in the New York Times from one of the uh, authors in the study. He said, I hope that the science can be used to educate people a bit more about how natural and normal same-sex behavior is, said uh, Benjamin Neal, a geneticist at MIT and Harvard, one of the lead researchers. He's also a proponent of the LGBTQ lifestyle and a leader of their uh, group of researchers on campus. It is written into our genes and it's part of our environment. This is part of our species and it's part of who we are. So there we are, we're right back to what we've been talking about. Now, interestingly, uh, Reuters News quoted a different researcher uh, who also was a co-leader of the research and said, we scanned the entire human genome. They found five locations clearly associated with uh, same-sex behavior. Oh, that sounds like, okay, we finally answered the question, right? What causes this behavior? And so the answer is, well, these five things have a very small effect, considerably less than 1%. So there you go. You know, thousands and thousands and thousands of genomes and millions of dollars, and they figured out about 1% of what makes a person uh, engage in same-sex behavior based on five genes. Now, they did uh, also say that based on their research, they think that the study uh, would indicate that perhaps genetic effects are up to 32%, but they, they couldn't actually find those genes. It's just conjecture that it, it might be as much as that. And prior to publishing the study, they actually took the results and they consulted with LGBTQ advocacy groups about how they should publish the study. So you start to go, huh, they're, they're trying really hard, but it's just not giving us a whole lot to go on. Other than it's overwhelmingly clear that, yes, there, there are some genetics involved, but there's a whole lot of other things involved too. It's not just genetics. Okay, uh, this is a completely different study, and this one actually, um, you can see here, 38% uh, increase in the odds of homosexuality, and this one was not genetic, this was about birth order. So if, if you have an older brother, then you're 38% more likely to engage in homosexual behavior than if you don't. Now, just to be clear, if, if it's been a while since you studied statistics, this 38%, that doesn't mean 38% of younger brothers are homosexual. What it means is it increases your chances 38%. So what's the baseline chance of homosexuality? Well, the researchers can't agree on that. And depending on who you look at, it, it varies quite a bit, anywhere from 1% to 5%, on the really high side, some people will say 10% of people are homosexual. I don't think that's true, but 
Uh, so somewhere, we'll, we'll say it's closer to 1% to 2%. So if you, if you take 2% and you increase that 38%, what is it? Uh, not quite 3%. Right? You understand the math there? It, anyway, it's important to understand, you know, they put these numbers and they make it sound like, ooh, we found this, but that's a, not a, a uh, significant contributor to most of the situations. So, but it is a, it is a contributor, but it's, it's not that significant. Uh, here's a whole book, uh, The Plasticity of Sex. I did not take time to read the whole book, but uh, I read significant portions of chapter 5, which is the chapter about homosexuality. And it says the, uh, the basis, biologic basis of homosexuality has not been incontrovertibly established. It is probably multifactorial. I think that's probably the best statement of the, the state of the science about sexual orientation is, well, we don't really know, but it's probably complicated. <laughs> now, this is interesting to me because they said the most interesting and plausible hypothesis is that it is the result of epigenetic modification of the genome at various phases in the sequence of events that canalizes sexual development. So, now, now, this is how it connects back to what Ellen White was saying about how you live your life affecting your offspring. Because those epigenetic changes are things that happen when there's inflammation in the body. In fact, um, I, I didn't get the references in here, but there are a number of references to if the mother smokes, the child's more likely to engage in homosexual behavior. Now, so smoking, smoking doesn't change the basic genome structure, but it changes the epigenetics of how some of those things are expressed. Uh, and, okay, here's another one. I'm gonna tell you, my wife said I should tell a story. I'm like, I'm just quoting Alan White. I'm not telling stories, but. My wife said I should tell a story, so I'm going to tell a story. I was in medical school and, uh, at Loma Linda. I went to Loma Linda. I was in the student center where the mailboxes were, kind of the student lounge area. And I had walked in to get my mail. There was a group of my classmates sitting there, probably about five or six guys and girls, and they were talking about homosexuals. And, you know, doctors talk about all sorts of things in all sorts of contexts. So that's not really unusual or necessarily good or bad. It's just a thing. So they were having this discussion, but it was kind of getting around to one of the guys asked a question. He said, what if you found out that your best friend was homosexual? Could you still be friends with him? And so they started debating whether or not you could still be friends with somebody that's homosexual. And... So there was a little pause, and I was standing there. I was kind of outside of the group, you know, standing behind, but I was listening, and, and so I was like, well, what if, what if you found out that your best friend was an adulterer? Could you still be friends with him? 
And nobody said anything else. It just got super quiet, and everybody left. I found out a few months later that two of my classmates were having an affair, and they both ended up leaving their spouses, and, that, and they were in that group. Ooh. Maybe that, does that change the whole discussion just a little bit? I mean, if you want a list of sins in the Bible, those sins are on the same list. Okay? Now we're talking about science. What if, what if being an adulterer is an inherited tendency? There's actually better evidence for that than for any of the homosexuality stuff. Um, so this study, um, I'm not going to read that to you, but it, it, it says there's little known about the genetic basis of variation in sexual behavior. That's still true after all the millions and millions of dollars and years and years of research. But here's one thing that they did find out, and looking at this genome, uh, this particular gene has to do with dopamine. Uh, it's a dopamine receptor and some uh, repeats there, um, variable number, tandem repeats. So if you have at least one with seven repeats, your chance of having a, an affair increases more than 50%. That's pretty serious. I think, uh, is it, it Mike Carducci that was saying, we're talking about sin, right? It's, it's not just LGBTQ. It's, it's sin we're talking about. And, uh, oh man, I only have five minutes left. Here we go. In their important work, parents must ask and receive divine aid. We, all of us here are here because we care about other people, Right? either parents, pastors, teachers, therapists, something like that. So this applies for all of us. The converting power of God can transform inherited and cultivated tendencies. Like for the religion of Jesus is uplifting. Born again means a transformation, a new birth in Christ Jesus. The new birth consists in having new motives, new tastes, new tendencies, those who are begotten into a new life by the Holy Spirit have become partakers of the divine nature, and in all their habits and practices, they will give evidence of their relationship to Christ. And now this, this one is for us. For us, meaning those of us that are trying to help other people. You must hold fast to those whom you are trying to help else victory can never be yours. See, if, if you want to help somebody by pushing them away, we've already heard testimony earlier, that, that doesn't help. We have to hold on. We have to draw people in. 
hold fast to those you're trying to help. They will be, uh, how often will they be tempted to evil? Continually. Again and again they will be almost overcome by the craving for strong drink. Now in this case, she's writing specifically about alcohol addiction, but I believe it's the same with any sin, any besetting sin that someone has uh, fallen to again and again. They've developed a habit, an addictive relationship with whatever that is, whether it's sexual sin, uh, drug addiction, Facebook addiction, whatever, again and again. But do not, because of this, cease your efforts. Don't give up on people when they fall. They have decided to make an effort to live for Christ, but their willpower is weakened, and they must be carefully guarded by those who watch for souls as they that must give an account. That's us, pastors, teachers, therapists. They have lost their manhood, and this they must win back. Many have a battle against strong hereditary tendencies to evil, unnatural cravings, sensual impulses were their inheritance from birth. These must be carefully guarded against. Within and without, good and evil are striving for the mastery. Those who have never passed through such experiences cannot know the almost overmastering power of appetite or the fierceness of the conflict between habits of self-indulgence and the determination to be temperate in all things. Over and over again, the battle must be fought. We don't believe in the once saved, always saved, do we? <laughs> it's over and over again, you have to come back to Jesus every day. And so much better if we learn to come back to Jesus before we fall, right? The first thing in the morning, make it a habit to turn to Jesus. So I'm going to close with uh, this one more passage from the book of Romans. You know, Paul struggled. If you read, now I deal a lot with people that have uh, metabolic challenges, diabetes, obesity, all that. And the research on trying to change your weight is like right up there with trying to change some of these other things we're talking about. It's like permanently changing your weight is a hard, hard thing to do. And I always talk about Romans chapter 7 and the, the struggle that Paul had because he was out of control. He didn't control himself. He couldn't do what he wanted. He, he, he had these desires for right, but kept falling. And you know, he said, oh, I hate myself. Who's going to deliver me from this? And the answer is, I thank God, it's Jesus Christ. It's, it's a, the Spirit the, the Holy Spirit that sets me free, the Spirit of life sets me free from the law of sin and death. For uh, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ hath made me, what? Free from the law of sin and death. So the law of sin and death, if you go, if you want a little interesting theological study, read Romans 7 and Romans 8, you'll see that there are seven different laws that are referred to there if you study it carefully. The law of sin and death, I believe uh, this is a, that law of genetics and epigenetics that says I inherited sin and death from my parents. So what Ellen White said, we read it earlier. That's our inheritance. But the good news is that Jesus sets me free from that. 
what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, so that, what? The righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So it's a journey. And as we walk after the spirit, the, the power of Jesus Christ comes into our life. You know, we, we have uh, some of our Christian friends say that um, you know, Jesus fulfilled the law so that we don't have to. But Jesus himself said, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And this is the only other place where it talks about the law, the righteousness of the law being fulfilled is in us. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the righteousness of the law in me and in you. And we can do that only through his strength working in us to bring about his honor and glory. And uh, so, oh, there's so much more, but it's time for dinner. Are you going to come up and uh, dismiss us? All right. Right, some discovery of things we might not have thought we were going to discover here. Some of that science was pretty interesting. And of course, the quotes. Uh, appreciate it very much the way you brought us into an awareness not only of the, uh, you might say, dour sense of what we've received through the generations, but the power of Jesus Christ has set us free from inherited and cultivated sin. Can you say amen?